if you take a look around you, you'll recognize the fact that the church is people. Okay? You have to look a little bit further than that because your people are not sitting next to you right now. Uh, and and most, pro most problems involving people are the result of one of three things. So if the, you know, for a relationship seminar, this is it right here. Miscommunication, wounded pride, or spiritual immaturity. Almost every conflict is resolved around those. Uh, the first is hard to prevent totally. Miscommunication, it's, you know, it doesn't matter how many years you've been married, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't, you know, there's, we, we can be using the same words, but we're using different dictionaries. You know, there's just a sense where there's difficulty with miscommunication. Um, the second is easily dealt with unless you are the one that is proud. If you're the proud one, this is not going to be easy to deal with. And the third one is both difficult and simple because it takes time and effort for us to grow spiritually. So it's miscommunication, pride, and uh, spiritual maturity. In the process of all that, God is patient with us. And at the same time, we should be patient with each other in this process. Um, I say that because while we were on vacation, I prayed for patience. I know. I know. Well, once again, what was I thinking? And so we got home, and I was, got a little bit impatient with Gwen. Not bad, just a little. I said, oh, well, she'll tell you it wasn't real bad. It was just a little. But she looked at me, and she goes, this is on you. I go, what's on me? And she goes, you're the one that prayed for patience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And may they, may they rise up and be heard. Um, but as God is patient with us, at the same time, we should be, strive to be growing and maturing. And if you take a look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 9, uh, we begin to see the, that aspect of growing and maturing. So take a minute, read through chapter 18, verses 1 through 9, and I'm going to ask you if there's one thought not a paragraph, just a thought that you have when you read through this. So go ahead and just read Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. Something that, you, that sticks out for you.
So as you read through those verses, was there any thought, you know, just a quick thought that may have come to your mind about those verses? Humility? Why do temptations have to come? The dumb question in the beginning, who is the greatest? How important children are to God? Live with the faith of a child. Yeah. Okay, well, we're done now for the day. Those are good points for the sermon. Let's close in prayer, have a song. And... No. <laughs> All those are good points. Anybody else? As you read it, some thought that pops out at you, some lesson. If you remember when... We've, as we've been going through Matthew, the first time that Jesus said that he was going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and eventually be killed, what did the disciples do? If, you know, like, no, this can't be true. They despaired. It was sort of like, no, I, we can't connect that. That just doesn't fit with our idea of what a Savior should be doing. Then in Matthew 7, verses 17, or chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he again announced for a second time that he's going to go up to Jerusalem to die. Okay? So he's telling the disciples this is what's going to take place. The first time they despaired. Now, in chapter 18, it's the first reported conversation that we have of the disciples after the announcement that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and die. And what is the conversation? Not, not, not our Savior. Our Savior can't die. How are we going to deal with that? Instead, it goes, okay, who's going to be the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Mark and Luke give a fuller explanation of all this. Because there, they give the impression, I think it is in Luke, that they're arguing. They're not just asking a question. They're debating who's going to be the greatest. And Peter's praying, hey, come on, you know it's going to be me, guys. I've been the spokesman for the last four chapters. And I'm the one, you know, who he picked me to go up. And I was the first one to see, you know, Moses and, you know, Jesus and, you know, up there on the mount. And... You know, James and John said, hey, what are you talking about? We're the ones that are beloved. So it's going to be one of us. You could just, and yet none of them have captured what Jesus has said. Because um, they are preoccupied with who will be greatest. Now, the interesting thing, the good news in all of this, is that they were discussing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. What, you know, who's going to have the best role when we get to heaven? When we're finally up in the kingdom? But their heart attitude was a problem. And not only was their heart attitude a problem, it is no different today for us. 
Um, the issue that these disciples are struggling with is not a unique issue to them, and it is a perennial issue for believers today. Um, whether it be pride in the church or pride in regards to people outside of the church. And I find it interesting that we get so frustrated with the immorality of what's going on around us, the injustices that are going on around us, when our biggest concern should be the souls that are going to hell around us. And that should be, and so there becomes a spiritual pride that we're somehow better than they are that prevents us from really getting into where they are and sharing with them Christ. It's been an interesting uh, last week and a half, two weeks. Um, and we've been to a lot of different places. But on Friday night, we were out for dinner. And we were having dinner. And we just, it was just Gwen and I were sitting almost like in a corner and out of the way of everybody. And they brought their dinner and we just, you know, just held hands and prayed. And the um, waiter came over and just said, it is so nice to see people pray before a meal. Now, my first response was, you know, that's really nice. My second response, now I gotta give a bigger tip. Um, but, you know, just sort of. And then when we, we were at a play, and while we were sitting there at the play, we were talking to a couple that was from North Carolina, and we started talking about church. What I find interesting, that if we leave our doors open, it's amazing how many people will be open to talking to, about faith. Every time we were around, there's opportunities for us just in conversation with people while we were gone to just listen to them and for them to ask us a question. And all of a sudden, faith somehow gets caught into it. I was talking to another man whose son was in a really bad car accident. He was okay, but it scared the father. And so I was just having a conversation with him. I said, how, how did that affect your faith? And immediately said, that is a great question, you know. And so it's not that people are opposed to it, it's how we approach. But that's, that's and that has nothing to do with at all what I was going to talk about today. Um, but the fact that those opportunities are provided for us on a regular basis. But the heart attitude was a problem. And by the way, this debate does not stop. Jesus confronts the debate here, and it doesn't stop. It raged on with the disciples. If you go over to the 20th chapter of Matthew, which we will get there someday, um, you'll find out that they're still debating about it. James and John's mother goes to Jesus and says, who's going to be the, you know, can my son sit on your left and your right side? You know, I mean, she's, you know, now petitioning Jesus to have her sons be the greatest in heaven. And don't just lay, you know, lay the blame on James and John. Um, it says that all of the disciples were filled with jealousy and envy. Um, and so they're all having the same problem. And even on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, before his crucifixion, the disciples are in there arguing who's going to be the greatest. Who, who's going to have the honored seat? 
So in all of these things, you can see man's pride. You can see the pride of humanity in all of this. And be careful, because we can take a look at that and see what their problem was and not realize that this is just a mirror reflecting us. You know, that's the problem, that sometimes we don't see the mirror. Um, the push to be the greatest is not always an outward display. It can also be in the quietness of our hearts uh, because we would be embarrassed sometimes to say out loud the kind of things we think. And it may be, well, how come they got noticed? I've done more than they've done. How come they get to teach? I'm, I'm better than they are. How come they asked them to do that because I could have done it better? How come, you know, we just have these little things and every time, every time we compare ourselves to someone else, that's a sign of pride. If we contrast ourselves with others, that's a sign of health. But if I compare myself to whatever, to anybody else, Instead of saying, no, you know, I'm not as good as or I'm better than, and very rarely do we say I'm not as good as. We always find people that are worse than us so we can say I'm better than. And, but, then, but to contrast instead, I'm different than. Jeff Jones has a lot different gifts than I do. Joe has a lot different gifts than I do. Jeff has a lot different gifts than I do. But I don't compare, I contrast and recognize that they're all important. That when we have pride, we compare. We compare. Um, so, this is what's going on with them. You see this pride. And when we really reflect on the question, who is the greatest? As Joe said, we realize how silly the question is. You know, it's a, it's a silly question because the greatest in the kingdom is Jesus. And what does Jesus say? If you want to display greatness, who are we supposed to emulate? Jesus. You reflect his greatness. And when did Jesus ever reflect that kind of pride? He's always humbling himself. He didn't even have to pay the temple tax, but he did it just for the sake of everybody else. You know, he could always have claimed who he was, and he didn't. Instead, he served. And the last night, he washed the disciples' feet. So there was always this sense of serving. And that is a hard thing for us to grasp in regards to that sense of humility, is that we recognize, or we don't want to recognize, our own areas of pride. So when they put to him the question, who is the greatest, look at even how Jesus responds to it. He brings a child and sits him on his knee and looks him in the eye and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a gentle and yet harsh statement. He's using a child to explain it, but he's saying, you guys are so full of pride. And unless you turn from that, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're worrying about who's going to be the greatest. You need to be about worrying about even getting there. And so it's a, but yet he speaks this truth 
using a child as his illustration. And so there's a gentleness at the same time as seriousness. And then he goes on, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just this judgment. It's saying, here's this child, and this is how you have to respond to, the, to, the, to God. Again, he approaches the disciples in the process of trying to teach them how to be humble. And note that the content of what he says not only conveys that, but even the way he conveys it teaches them how to be humble. Jesus could have easily blasted these men for their indifference and their pride, which probably would have been what I would have done. You know, I just told you that I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And all you guys care about is who's going to be the greatest. I don't even know why I chose you. Go, go away from me. I, I, I'd be better off on my own. I don't need you guys. I mean, that's how, how easily I could be hurt. And Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't. In a gentle and kind way, he teaches them to be humble. And we learn as much from how Jesus does it as how he says it. And Jesus always connects the truth of the word with his actions. Those two always are combined. Truth with love. Um, and it isn't that we... And it, it, that's exactly what we should aim for when we communicate that same truth with love. And when it's not there, when the love isn't there, it's our own pride. I've been uh, reading a book or listening to a book called The Servant, which was written about 20 years ago. It's a great book on servant leadership. And it focuses on the aspect of love and how love is not an emotion there. Love is always a verb. And if you go through 1 Corinthians 13 um, and you see that love chapter, it's all words, uh, action verbs. Be kind, be humble, be patient, be long-suffering. All those words are definition of love and it has nothing to do with emotion. It has everything to do with this is the way God tells us to love. Be kind to one another. Be understanding. Be patient with one another. Be gentle with one another. And it doesn't matter whether you like the person. It has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with what God says. And so the, the point that when I was listening to it, there are times when it's not as easy for me to be kind because I base my emotion on it. Am I going to be kind because I feel like it? Or am I going to be kind because it's obedient to being to who God wants me to be? And so uh, that was a huge lesson to me. And the reason why I don't like going on vacation because I read those things and then I have to reflect on them. Um, so Jesus deals with them in such a way that he shows them true humility not just in his words, but in his actions. But then also hear the power of what Jesus is saying in the statement. Um, it wasn't there just to challenge their pride, but to put their mind back on what is the most important thing. What does it take to enter the kingdom? Uh, Jesus says that you must be converted and become like children. Otherwise, you will not. 
And in verse 3, notice the word turn. Um, Jesus declares in verse 3 that a heart is changed. That you have to turn from your human pride. You have to turn from those things and instead turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to, to him, to humility. Um, because that question of who is the greatest is a question of pride. And so we have to turn. In fact, he says to his disciples, if your heart is not changed, if you are not converted, if you don't become humble like a little child, you won't enter. It's, you, know, you just don't enter. And to, so to be converted requires a person to become like a child. And if you realize that, a child is simple. They're not really complicated. They're dependent. They're helpless. They're genuine. They're unpretentious. They're modest. They, they trust someone to provide for them. They believe what is told them. They submit to authority and they obey, at least some kids. Um, but there's that sense. And, and when there's when they have a broken relationship with their child, they hunger for reconciliation. Those are the qualities that he's saying. And why it's so hard for us to overcome our pride and say, that's what I need to do. I need to trust someone. I need to recognize that Jesus provides. I know that he, I believe what he told me. I don't have to continue to hold on to my false beliefs. I can let it go. So salvation comes through faith in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Um, and faith is, tr is a trust placed in someone that is ongoing. It's not just a one-time event. Okay, I accepted Christ 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but I haven't trusted him since. I accepted Christ 40 years ago, but, you know, I've, after I got my fire insurance taken care of, now I could just go on doing whatever I want to do. I don't have to have him continuing to transform me into him. I don't have to have be in this process of ongoing sanctification. Uh, instead, yeah, I've got it taken care of. Yeah. And I think there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who said, okay, I got my fire insurance taken care of. But now I'll just continue to live on the way I want to live. So the point of the child is an illustration of humility. The, con the child is not concerned with social status. Then out of such humility will come a childlike trust. And the disciples have to change from focusing on themselves to a childlike trust in Christ. A person who remains proud will not be converted because their vanity will always keep them from admitting their own shortcomings and seeking forgiveness. Admitting their own sin and seeking forgiveness. Which again is one of the most difficult aspects of evangelism. People do not want to stand in front of another person and say, I was wrong. I'm a sinner and I can't handle life on my own. I need Jesus Christ to forgive me and to change me. People just don't want to do that. We have a society that focuses on pride. We have a society that focuses on rights, not responsibilities. We have a society that says, 
It's a, you know, whatever I say is okay. And so we don't have a society that has a, a humility as, associated with it. So it's pretty hard sometimes to break into an adult and say, you know what, you have to have faith of a child in order to be saved. Um, and conversion is a change of direction. You've been going our own way. In answer to his call and to his grace, we start going his way. Um, Jesus' path to greatness, I heard one person say, is not upward mobility, but rather downward humility. Um, and in his kingdom, the moral law, moral law of gravity states that whatever comes up must first go down. Whatever goes up must first go down. And it means a total change, an intellectual change, an ethical change, a relational change. Jesus calls it a new birth, a new beginning. The only way that we participate. So this humility of heart is so vitally important. Um, now, that attitude is so different from the attitude of the world today. And you can illustrate it in a lot of ways. Um, but let, just, let me give you one example which probably I have been guilty of with my kids and I realize the subtlety of it. You hear it all the time. Believe in yourself. You know, and it sounds good at first, but then you, and you just continue. Believe in yourself and you can do anything. And if you live in the United States, of course, believe in yourself, you can do anything. Get the right education, you can do anything. And it sounds so good. And it sounds like these are the things that I want my child to understand, that he can do anything he wants, she can do anything she wants, that she has that ability. But listen to the phrase. Believe in yourself, you can do anything. And then listen to what Jesus says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, where's the real emphasis? Is it that I can do all things? Or is it that God can do all things through me? You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One leaves Christ out completely. The other one recognizes without Christ, I can't do anything. But yet we, and so these things are so subtle. And they sound good and they fit our emotion and so we buy into them. The statement, great America, great again. Well, if greatness is humility, how do we become a humble nation in order that we can become a great nation? See, I mean, certain things sound good, but if we take them and put them on the scripture or put the scripture on them, and then now redefine what greatness is based on God's word, not based on slogans, but we will listen to slogans and repeat the slogans thinking that those, that's truth. And it's not. And so we, you know, we have to challenge that. So even when I tell my kids, and I raised my kids, believing that they could do anything. I've told, I told Micah, I said, you can do anything. You know, what? And when he was about 20 years old, he said, Dad, that's a lie. And I go, what, what do you mean it's a lot? I can't do anything I want. 
I'm not gifted in certain areas. And, and it's not me trying to do it on my power. So I got confronted by my son for telling him lies. I, you know, I felt like I just, you know, I said, okay, let me correct that. Um, so it's, it sounds simple, but sometimes the things we say reveal so much. Um, so what does it mean in Christ's kingdom to become his little children? It sure doesn't mean that we become childish, because that's what Jesus was you know, accusing the disciples of. We also know that it doesn't mean we become children in our understanding, because the Bible tells us that we should become mature in our faith. It means that we become content in God's love. It means we don't always worry about tomorrow's needs. And finally, it means that we have hope in God. We have hope in Christ. We don't look to our own resources. We don't imagine that it's all up to us. Instead, we place our hope in God. And then in verse 5 and 6, Jesus reminds us that it's not only the attitude of humility that we have in ourselves, but it's an attitude of humility that we relate to one another, which is the evidence of God's having worked the change in us. When we have that attitude of humility towards one another, that's when we know that God is transforming us. He's removed that pride and said, no, I have a, a change. So whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Hear that. You're receiving the child. You're receiving Christ. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now this millstone that you find out in the other places is a monster millstone, and the only way you can move it is by hooking it up to donkeys and having them drag it from one place to another. So now this is tied around your neck, and they throw you in the sea. That means you're going down quick. This isn't like, you know, maybe I can tread here while this is, you know. No, you're, it's done. And the interesting thing, that's not even what he's talking about. He said it would be better for you. Because what's going to happen is even worse. You know, um, they're better off if that were done for them than what will happen to them. Okay, let's see. Having a millstone tied around my neck, thrown into the ocean, that would be the better punishment? You know? That's huge, folks. When I was an associate pastor at other churches, I loved that role. And the reason I love that role is because there was an umbrella of authority that was over me. I wasn't the spiritual guide. I wasn't the leader. And so I, was, I never felt that same sense of responsibility of teaching God's word. Because when I read these verses and I recognize if I say something or do something that damages the faith or prevents somebody from entering into God's kingdom, that burden is a heavy burden for me to wear. I never wanted to be a senior pastor. I never wanted to plant a church. I liked being under somebody else's authority. 
And one of the biggest changes in my heart when we planted River Valley was the element of seriousness I took to God's Word. It, 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 was, it changed me significantly. But to this day, I still hold on to that sense, what am I saying, what am I doing, and what if it causes somebody else to stumble, and what if it causes somebody to turn away from Christ? You know, that that is a serious responsibility, and to make sure that whatever I can do, that I never intentionally do something that causes damage to somebody else. But clearly, what Jesus is saying is, you better not mess with my people. You better not mess with my people. I have my children, and you better not mess with them, because if you mess with them, the punishment is going to be severe. Um, because when we receive one from Christ, a child in the name of Christ, we're receiving Christ. If we do something to damage one, we're damaging Christ. And so clearly, um, those people will answer to, to God. So J Jesus is looking out for his people. But his prime message here is for his disciples in taking care in the way they manifest humility to others. So how do we show that same humility to others? Do we care for others? And do we focus on responsibilities over rights? Or do we say we have our rights that we hold on to and nobody ever better take away my rights and that I don't have to worry about my responsibility to one another? I don't have to worry about using 1 Corinthians 13 to be the guide to my love for one another because I have rights. And as soon as I let go of my rights, I could focus on my responsibilities. Um, and the attitude of humility is always concerned about responsibility, and it always acts out of proper estimation of who we are and our concern for other. So what is humility? Paul described it in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. So, here, how do we look at the interest of one another? How do we care and support one another? Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have absolute, complete confidence in God and no confidence in myself. <laughs> There's sort of a, an element of truth to that. And Calvin said, nothing but the knowledge of God can produce humanity. And I thought a lot about that statement. Nothing but the knowledge of God and produce humility in us. The only way we are going to grow in that kind of humility is by knowing more and more about God, developing more and more of our prayer life, developing more and more of our understanding of the Scripture, and not just reading the Scripture for the purpose of saying, 
I know it, that this isn't what it says, but now I know it and it's beginning to change my heart. It's beginning to change my mind. Because the more we know of God, that is the only thing that's going to change us into being a humble people. The reason we're having a Bible studies during Lent, the reason we do one-on-one, the reason why we do M3, the reason why we do Exhale, the reason why we do digs, are all different ways people can connect with God's Word. The reason why we have right now media available for free for every person in the church is so that people on their own, they can be in their car, they can be at home, they can be with their family, they can be watching different things on their phone, on their iPad, on their TV, on anything that shows a picture. And you can be watching those things all for the purpose of helping people grow in their understanding of God so that we truly can be his servants, his humble servants, and that we can care for each other the way God cares for us. I thought about some of the people that you think that are great. And a lot of times we go to political leaders or people like that, but the greatest people ever that we recognize are not people who had power. When, when you think of Mother Teresa, who had unbelievable influence and, you know, cha- and could talk to anybody, she didn't have a position of power. Nelson Mandela didn't have a position of power. Martin Luther King really didn't have a position of power. And yet these are leaders and people who changed the world because of who they were and their ability and their willingness to serve. Um, and then in verse 7, Jesus speaks realistically of life. In this fallen world, woe to the world of temp- for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Um, I really don't like that verse either. Um, we live in a world that is full of temptations. We can't escape we, we can't expect to escape from being tempted or even being impacted by them. In fact, Jesus says, offenses are going to come, folks. You're going to be tempted. It, these, this is just going to happen. They are necessary. And maybe they're necessary for us to be able to put into practice our faith in Christ, our, our you know, just as trials. And he says in verses 8 through 9, Give sound advice. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it off from you. It is better for you to enter into the flame or maimed, into life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. I really don't think Jesus is telling us to cut off hands, pop out eyes, um, do those things. But the truly humble person helps to build up others and not to tear them down. He is a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Therefore, anything that makes us stumble must remove from my life. And that's going to be different for every person. But if there's, you know, you say, you know, I really want to get into the, uh, develop a better prayer life, 
or I want to develop this, or I want to serve more, but I would love to serve, but it, it interferes with what I watch on Tuesday nights. I'd really like to go to Diggs, but there's this TV program on Wednesday night that I, that I need to watch so I don't go to Diggs. The choice. What are we putting before us, and what prevents us from growing? So humility begins with self-examination and it continues with self-denial. Jesus was not suggesting that we maim our bodies nor harm ourselves, um, but he is suggesting that we do a spiritual surgery. We do an honest self-evaluation, and there may be certain things that we just deny in order to continue to grow in Christ. Um, the sin of pride is so subtle that we don't even see it. And the reason we don't see it is because we compare ourselves with people who are worse. And as long as I can point out anything that's worse, I don't have to look at myself. The humble person lives for Jesus first and others next. He puts himself last. And again, Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that you give us to just look into your word. And Lord, help us not just to read your word or to just study your word, but to open our hearts and our minds to truly be transformed by your word. And Lord, I know that there's so many areas in my life that it's easy for me to acknowledge that I'm moving in the wrong direction. But I just don't take it seriously. And I just can continue on. But your word says we need to stop. We need to turn. And so Lord, in the areas of my own life where there's been elements of pride, I repent of this. And not only repent, but Lord, I ask for your strength and your guidance as I turn and go towards you in order that my life can truly be a reflection of who you are. That I can acknowledge the things that I've done, but now help me to also deny those things so they don't continue to be a barrier to my relationship with you and my relationship with others. Yeah, Father, I just thank you and I praise you and I ask for your continued guidance and blessing upon each and every person here that we can go forth to be a blessing to others is my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said,